Genesis 16, verse 1 to 6. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord, she kept, the Lord has kept from me having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her, gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai ill-treated Hagar, so she fled from her. The next reading is in Genesis chapter 17, verse 15 to 22. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her, and she will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. King of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be, man to be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of twelve rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. In Galatians 4, 21 to 5, 1. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The woman represents two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child, Break forth and cry aloud, you who, never, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate women than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with a free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Naomi, thanks uh, very much for uh, reading, and um, I hope you're very clear on whose child is whose and what slaves are doing, and um, it's so simple I thought we'd have it twice. 
uh, once in the Old Testament, once in the New. Hopefully we can make sense of that. If you've not met, my name is Matt, uh, Matt Fuller, uh, senior pastor here. But uh, you're joining us as we're working our way through this book of Galatians. Uh, it is a wonderful, wonderful book about freedom. I think we better pray and uh, make a start. Let's pray. Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ and that he came to bring us freedom. And again this evening, we pray we'd understand more of that freedom. It would delight us now. We would recognize how good it is, perhaps, if we take it for granted. We'd recognize how wonderful it is if perhaps we doubt its goodness. Father, would you persuade us for the first time or afresh how good it is to be free in Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, our passage tonight, it forces upon us somewhat of a choice. It's quite a simple choice, really. Are you going to trust God's promise or will you rely on yourself? That's the choice, okay. Will you trust God's promise or will you rely on yourself? Then once this is a familiar sort of dilemma, uh, you can put it in these terms, you're going to, um, uh, I don't know, uh, Saturday night and you're going to a party in Reading for some reason and uh, a friend says, oh, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a lift. Terrific, thank you very much. Um, and so they say, we'll pick you up at seven. Great, that'd be uh, magic, thank you very much. And so it gets to seven o'clock and they're not there. Well, uh, it gets to ten past seven, not there. Give them a text, nothing. Twenty past seven, not there. Try phoning, ooh, weird. Um, and uh, their phone's off. Half past seven. Uh, now what do I do? Uh, do I trust them? Or have I got to make my own way? Well, it probably depends who it is and how trustworthy and reliable they are and what their track record is, etc., etc. But that's just life, isn't it? In lots of scenarios, big or small, you trust a promise someone's made or you rely on your own steam to achieve, get you there, whatever it may be. What we have here in uh, Genesis 16, 17, and as Paul relays it here in uh, Galatians chapter 4, is a slightly more extreme example. So God gave a promise to Abraham and Sarah. I will give you a child. And the years tick by, and the years tick by, and there's no child. Eleven years tick by, there's no child. Then what do you do? Do you trust God's promise? Or do you rely on yourself and say, well, well, he hasn't delivered. I need to do it myself. Eleven years. It's a long time. Well, but again, I guess it depends upon the, the one who speaks. It depends how trustworthy they are. What sort of track record God has got. And Paul is using that uh, account of the Old Testament, the, the events of Abraham and Sarah's life, to apply it to the presenting issue here uh, in this region of Galatia, the Galatian churches. And again, he's saying that God has made a promise. You can trust in Jesus Christ's death for you. That has put you in right standing with him. That will take you all the way to heaven. Or you can rely on yourself. 
and think, well, Jesus has given me a good head start, but now it's all me. Do you see, in every one of these scenarios, it's the same choice. You trust a promise that God has made, or you rely upon yourself. That is the issue. And Paul wants to really drive home again tonight. If you trust in God's promise, you're free. That is a path of freedom, liberation, delight. If you rely on yourself, it is slavery. Just don't do it. That's what he's going to say. Now, if you have been here over the last few weeks, if we've been looking at the book of Galatians, then hopefully you're familiar with this as a problem. Paul has been insisting there is great freedom uh, in knowing God through Jesus Christ. And so you don't want to, he doesn't want these uh, Galatian Christians to turn back to relying upon themselves. There are a bunch of false teachers in town, and they are saying, well, uh, to be a real Christian, you need to trust in Jesus, yes, and then add on your own obedience to the law. And Paul says, that just puts you on this path. It's self-reliance. Don't do that. Now, if I'm honest, I've been asking myself for much of the week, what's new in uh, verses, uh, chapter, 20, uh, chapter 4, verses 21, uh, to the end of that section? Uh, what's new? What hasn't Paul said before? And uh, I think I've worked out what it is. Nothing. If I'm honest. He says the same thing, in a different way, but he doesn't really add anything new, which I think makes the point, this is something we struggle to believe. And we need to be told it again, and again, and again, and again. Don't rely on yourself. Trust God's promise to you for your salvation in Jesus Christ, for how you live as a Christian, Trust God's promise to you in Jesus. You're free. Don't go back to slavery. Okay, so again, he's emphasizing this choice. So I think the passage goes like this. He makes the same point in two slightly different ways. You choose self-reliance or God's provision, verses 21 to 23. You choose uh, slavery now or freedom and future hope in 24 to 27. It's the same choice described in two different ways. And then briefly at the end, you've got to expect two things. If you take the path of freedom, do expect two things. Okay? Let's work through it. Most of our time, at least half, is uh, in this first section. Verses 21 to 23, you either choose self-reliance or you choose God's promise. Chapter 4 and verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? And this is brilliant, by the way. Uh, it's just a brilliant uh, strategy. Uh, so the false teachers in, uh, in Galatia, they're saying, oh, this is good, this is good. So you've, you've started your life in Christ. Good, well done you. But um, now if you want to progress, if you want to become children of Abraham like us, uh, then um, well, you need to improve. You need to not only just believe in Jesus, but you need to add law obedience on as well. Then you become a child of Abraham. Mm, that's, that's first class. Christianity, that's, that's really making progress. And so Paul's going to turn around and say, okay, yeah, children of Abraham, let's talk about that. Let me show you who really are the children of Abraham. It's always those who trust promise, not self-reliance. So uh, very quickly, he tells them this, condenses quite a lot of scripture, but puts it in these words. Verse 22. For it is written, 
that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as as the result of a divine promise. Now, I wonder if we've got a little slide, uh, uh, and you would just leave this up for the whole point. Um, if some, that's helpful. Some people think in those terms, okay? That's the sort of the division. You've got the slave woman, Hagar. That's a child born in the ordinary way, ordinary conception. Very good. The child is Ishmael, and that is what Paul describes as self-reliance. Or, on the other hand, you've got a free woman, Sarah, born of a promise, Isaac. Got, okay. Now let me take you back into Genesis and talk you through it. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to Abraham. Abraham's about 75 years old, and God says to him, you're going to have a child. And through this child, Abraham, that you and Sarah are going to have together, multiple descendants are going to come, more than you can possibly imagine. That's Genesis 12, and Abraham's about 75 years old. We had read Genesis 16, It's 11 years later, and there's no child. And so Mrs. Abraham, Sarah says, we've got no kids. And to be honest, Abraham, you're 86, I'm 76, it ain't going to happen. If it was going to happen, it was going to happen. It ain't going to happen now. Why don't you sleep with my servant, Hagar? Which in the culture of the time, not good biblically, but in the culture of the time... If you could do that, Hagar belonged to Sarah. If Abraham sleeps with Hagar and Hagar has a daughter, excuse me, a child, then it's technically Sarah's because she owns the slave. Obviously, it's immoral, but uh, that's what she's suggesting. Abraham is up for this uh, uh, scheme, and so they do, uh, and they have a go. It's not unusual in the culture of the time, but you see what they're doing. I know they've waited 11 years, but there's a point. Are we now going to trust God's promise? God God, the Lord, has said, I will give you a child, Abraham, you and Sarah. Do we trust that? Or after 11 years, do we think, oh, stuff this. Uh, Let's do it ourselves. Let's find a way. And they rely on themselves to have a child. And now, 13 years later, we had read Genesis 17. So Abraham now is 99 years old. They've got a son. Ishmael, the immoral child, the, the child born of Hagar, the slave. They've got a, Abraham's 99, Ishmael's 13. God says, Abraham, next year you're going to have a child. And Abraham laughs. We've been waiting 24 years for you to come true on this promise. And um, I'm 99. Mrs. Abraham, Sarah, she's 89. Mm, you had your chance. Uh, what are you talking about, Lord? There's a perfectly good child here, Ishmael. Let the promise, let all the descendants come through him. And, and God says, no, I promised you. In one year's time, you'll have a child. You and Sarah will have a child, Isaac. And he is the child of promise. And through him, all the descendants will come. Through him, all the blessings to the nations will come. Through him not through Ishmael. You don't need to do it yourself, says the Lord. But that's the story of Abraham and Sarah at this point. They didn't trust God's promise. They went through the route of self-reliance and thought they could fix it themselves. Okay. Paul here picks up on that story and says, do you see the choice 
Trust a promise, rely upon self. You see that choice. Abraham and Sarah took the wrong route. That did not produce children of promise. Ishmael was never the child of promise. It was always Isaac. So you want to talk about whose children of Abraham? It's those who trust a promise, not those who rely upon themselves. That's his point. Okay. Let me, um, let me push this in three ways, okay? Let me, uh, th- three little applications. The first is Paul's main one, and then we drifted a little bit, but hopefully they'll help too. So let me ask three questions. Okay, what does this mean? How are we saved? How do we feel? How do we live? First then, and here's Paul's real point. How does this apply to how we're saved? Paul's point is this. What is your righteousness? What is it that puts you right with God, puts you in right standing with him? And it is trusting in the promise of salvation through Jesus Christ, not relying on yourself. I'm gonna borrow this, this might annoy you, sorry. Um, There we go. I had an unusual conversation. No one asked me this very often, very this, this bluntly or this directly. On Tuesday night, a woman called Janet I was speaking to, and uh, she said, okay, you're a Christian minister. How can I be right with God? It's quite direct. No, not often you get asked quite that directly. How can I be right with God? So I tried simply to explain it. Okay. The Bible would say none of us are naturally right with God. Actually, we're all condemned because of how we live, how we act, how we behave, how we relate to God. We're all naturally condemned. And we can't get ourselves the other side to be in right standing with the Lord. Naturally, this is our condition. But the wonderful truth of Christianity is that Jesus Christ was not condemned. He was righteous. And upon the cross, he takes our condemnation So we're given his righteousness. So it is when we trust in him that we're in right standing, we go from being condemned to righteous when we trust in Jesus Christ. Do you understand this sort of legal language, court language? That was in my head at the time, that's what we spoke about. And um, she said, oh, I, I think I get that, apart from what do I contribute? Nothing. But how am I involved? You just trust him. But I'm a bit uncomfortable with that. Oh, why, Janet? Because I, I don't add anything. No. It's 100% what he has done for you. It's bizarre because it sounds good, but there's something within me, she said, that I don't like about that. I said, I, I can't tell you what it is. I wonder, if you'll all be, allow me to be honest, if it's pride that you want to contribute something rather than just trusting the promise that Jesus has done everything for you. Hmm. That's sort of where we got to. How are we saved is Paul's real question here. It is by trusting in the promise of Jesus Christ upon the cross that he took our guilt we get his righteousness. And you see, that is a path of freedom. Because once you've done that and you've crossed the line, 
You are in. There is nothing you can do. Whereas if you take the route of self-reliance, you're always going to be asking, have I done enough? Okay, it's it's trust in Jesus plus my own uh, obedience to commands makes me right with God. Have I done enough? Have my good deeds outweighed my bad deeds? Possibly today, probably not yesterday. What about tomorrow? I don't know how tomorrow's going to go. That is an anxiety or a slavery because you can never be certain. And that's why Paul says, don't go that route. Self-reliance is always slavery. How are we saved? Let me push that a little bit further, though, with two further things. And we're drifting a little bit away from the text, but I hope it helps. Uh, the second will be, how do we feel? Because even if you're a Christian and you, and you know that's true, you think, yeah, I know that. I know that. I trusted Jesus Christ. I've just sung that, haven't we? Uh, he puts me right. It's because of what I, he does, not because of what I do. I know that in my head. Yeah, but of course, functionally, feelings of self-reliance lurk within all of us. So um, let me put it in crass terms. So here you are. You're wandering around uh, Christchurch, Mayfair. You've been here for the last year or whatever it may be, the last two months. Uh, and you look around and think, I think pretty much, I wouldn't put it, I wouldn't say this to anyone. But pretty much, I am an 8 out of 10 Christian. I look around and think, compared to many others, I am godly, better than the 6 out of 10s. I am a pretty good uh, Bible study leader. I lead good studies. Um, I've been told that, and I reckon they're right when they tell me that. Um, And I'm pretty generous with my time, and I'm pretty generous with my money. So all in all, I'm an 8 out of 10. Not bad. And you sit there and think, I like going to church because I'm an 8 out of 10. And then, one night someone says to you, maybe you've led a Bible study and someone says to you, look, I don't know how to say this, but I think you've got to go and apologize to those three people in the group. The study you led tonight was terrible. It made no sense. It was completely unclear. And you ended up just sort of shouting at people for not understanding you and then being really rude about their mothers. Don't worry about that. You are, that was terrible. You're a terrible, tonight was just terrible. Now, if lurking within you is the sense of my standing before God and my standing in the church is how I perform as a Bible study leader on how nice I am and my reputation as a nice person, then at that moment in time, when someone says, you, you know, someone doesn't put it quite this bluntly, but someone functions, someone, what you hear them saying is, you think you're eight out of 10. Tonight, my friend, you were a three. You were a three out of 10. Now, if you live, if you sort of stand on how you think your Christian life is, at that moment in time, you rage. You will be enslaved to defensiveness. What do you know? Your studies are rubbish. You may not say it out loud, or you might, but in your head. And again, you can walk down a path of functionally slavery because you think your value is due to yourself rather than, yeah, I do want to, do want to, if I'm honest, I bogged it tonight. Everything was bad tonight, and I do need to go and apologize to everyone. It's okay, though, because my standing before the Lord is due to Jesus and not how I've performed How are we saved? That's Paul's point. It filters into how do we feel and how do we live out. 
the Christian life. And let me just put that, push that one stage further. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. How, how do you live? If you're, if you're standing on God's promise, then you find your confidence, not just before him, but before the world in his promise. If you don't trust in the promise of Jesus Christ, then you have to find your righteousness in relation to the world, your, your confidence, your standing in something else. Could be a whole range of things. Let me give you two examples. Appearance and career. Uh, First, appearance. I was reading about Tinder the other day. Did you hear that correctly? I was reading about Tinder the other day. I'm not a swiper myself. Um, This is, uh, it was, and uh, a survey had been done about 9,000 18 to 22 year olds. Uh, it was actually in the US, not in the UK, but 9,000, so a reasonable sample, 2,000 is a good sample for any poll, but so 9,000, 18 to 22 year olds, 78% of them said they used Tinder. 22% said they used it to hook up. The rest said they used it for self-esteem boost. So of the vast number who actually use it, only 22% actually used it, I guess, for what its function is, to hook up. I'm sure they'd branded it as to find your marriage partner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, To hook up. The rest are using it on a daily basis or a weekly basis just to like a few people. Will I be liked back? Great. I've still got it. For most people, it's just about self-esteem. You see, if you don't really trust that the most important thing is God's promise to you is you are loved, you're a child, your standing in this world and before him is determined by what Jesus has done for you, then you have to find something else. And it may just be appearance. I've just got to, yeah, I'm a bit bored and I just wonder, um, let me find some people who, oh, they've liked me. Oh, that's all right. And if no one likes you, no one, well, that's crushing. So it could be you find your, your standing in the world in, in appearance. Uh, another one would be career. Here's just one example of that. Uh, you know the actor Tom Hardy? He's all over the place at the moment. He's been everything, uh, all sorts of films, and BBC One dramas. Uh, Tom Hardy. In 2002, he was billed as the next big thing, uh, you know, 15 years ago, and it, and it flopped. He was in a Star Trek film. None of you remember. Half of you weren't born. Uh, but um, that's not true. I know it's not true. But uh, 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 the film just completely flopped, and uh, he went off the rails. He became an alcoholic, he became a crack addict. It's only in the last five years that he's got his career back on track, Batman and all various things, uh, you know, when he was Bane and whatever, uh, and lots of things subsequently. Uh, interview, I read an interview with him, it's interesting. Uh, the interviewer puts, said to him, so at the moment, you're everywhere. Everything you touch is, turns to gold. What drives Tom Hardy? His response, I need everyone to love me. I am not interested in constructive criticism. All I want is adulation. It's immature, I know, but that's totally there in me. What drives you? I just need everyone to say I'm great. I am not interested in anyone in my career saying that was a bad film anymore. I just need that. And if I don't get that, I go off the rails. Now, those are two ones. 
fairly striking examples to my mind. Where is my standing in the world? What gives me my standing? What gives me my confidence to approach the world, to live in this world? If it isn't trusting in the promise of Jesus Christ that I'm a beloved child of his, I've got to find something else. Ouch. You either trust the promise of God for your standing before him, that's fundamentally it, but also, but also then how you live in this world or you rely on yourself. If you're relying on your looks, good luck with that. I am living testimony, they fade. Your career. You choose self-reliance or you choose God's promise. Let's pick up the pace then. Uh, verses 24 to 27. He says much the same thing, but in different terms. You, you choose slavery now or freedom and future hope. Slavery now or freedom and future hope. Verse 24. These things are being taken figuratively. Uh, brief tangent. Can we do that? Are we allowed to do that with the Bible? Can we just take stuff figuratively? Uh, well, I'm not sure... In one sense, that's a brilliant translation of what he means. Paul is bringing out a meaning, in one sense, the underlying meaning of Genesis 16 and 17. Will you trust God's promise or will you trust yourself? So he's not, when he applies that in that way, in this way, it is kind of the main meaning of what's going on here. Now, although you'd have to say in these verses, he kind of takes the story of Sarah and Hagar and uses it to illustrate his point further. Uh, verse 24, these things are being taken figuratively. The, woman, the women represent two covenants. One covenant from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem. She is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is her, our mother. So another little table uh, on this one. Uh, that's just how it works. Okay? That's his logic. You go down the left-hand side, that's the root of self-reliance. You trust what you can see in front of you, the present city of Jerusalem. Or, on the right-hand side, you trust the promise. You trust that there's a heavenly Jerusalem, and that's what you're living for. That's, again, his contrast. He illustrates it in verse 27 with a quote from Isaiah 54. It's written, Isaiah 54, "'Be glad, barren women.'" You who never bore a child, break forth and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. When Isaiah was speaking, Jerusalem was empty, desolate. It had been raised to the ground. And God says to his people in the Old Testament, when you look around at Jerusalem, it's not very encouraging, is it? But can I tell you one day, there will be more children of Jerusalem than you can possibly imagine. And that's true now, because the children of the heavenly Jerusalem, heaven, are Christians belonging to Jesus Christ. And there are more of those throughout the centuries and throughout the world than God's people in the Old Testament could possibly have imagined. And he goes for this, because there's another picture of barrenness, versus fertility, I guess. You see the picture, it's a very moving one. You can imagine a woman who's never born a child, surrounded by fertile women with multiple large families, and she feels left out. And God says, don't you feel left out? One day, 
one day you will have more children than you can possibly imagine. And again, his point is, look, there you are, you're the Christians in Galatia, and you're quite small. There are not huge numbers of you. And you look around and think, we're a bit weak and pathetic. One day, one day, when you're before the throne of God in heaven, rejoicing with the, 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 the crowd of those who've been redeemed, you will know you made the right choice. Very wonderful. Somewhere here would have been here in um, uh, January. Do you remember we saw a video of uh, Dima Momoike, who's, who's in Belarus? Do you remember? Some, one or two will remember. And they meet in the woods because they're persecuted by the police uh, and they're persecuted by the official state church. So they meet in the woods sometimes. Well, what an encouraging promise if you're him. Oh, you feel small. You feel pretty pathetic now. One day. One day. You will see. The trusting in the promise means you're part of this enormous crowd. Very wonderful. Choose self-reliance or God's promise. Choose slavery now or freedom and future hope. But once you've chosen God's promise, finally, in verses 28 to 31, expect two things. You can expect persecution and expect freedom too. Verse 28. Verse 28, now brothers and sisters, now you brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It's the same now, but what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. The slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we're not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. He's saying, look, back in the Old Testament, 13-year-old Ishmael mocked Isaac when he was born, and for the next period of, life, of their life, he mocked him and he mocked him and he mocked him and he mocked him. And that will always be the same way. Genuine Christians who trust in the promise of God will always be mocked by those who are religious but trust in themselves. They have to. If you're a religious person and think self-reliance puts you right with God, and the genuine Christian says, your, your religious achievements are worth nothing. It's only faith in Jesus that counts. That is profoundly irritating and you hate these people and you mock them. And Paul said it was that way in the Old Testament. It is that way in the first century in Galatia. It will be that way for the next 2,000 years and beyond. And I'd be shocked if you've never known it. For myself, um, by clergy within the Church of England, I've gone to meetings and been hissed at when I've walked in the room. I've been dismissed as having a childish faith and needing to grow up. I've been called a theological Nazi for believing that on the cross Jesus died to take the wrath of God. I mean, this just goes on all the time. But no doubt those you meet as well who are religious and take their religiosity quite seriously, will feel very unsettled and challenged if you say, no, no, you just trust in Jesus Christ. That's what you do. But what do I contribute, Janet says? Nothing. It's very unsettling. And that persecution will always come. So expect that, but expect freedom. Expect freedom too. Chapter five, verse one. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. 
Stand firm. Don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Trust God's promise. He loves you in Jesus Christ. He has done everything to secure your salvation in Jesus Christ. Everything. Don't rely on yourself. Don't do that. I read a funny interview this uh, was about a month ago with Seal. Anyone remember Seal, the pop singer? He was quite big a while ago uh, because he made some good songs. Uh, but then he became quite famous because he married Heidi Klum, the sort of German supermodel, and they were a sort of glamorous couple. Uh, and they did this thing every year. They would um, retake their marriage vows on some sort of picture skew uh, location, you know, sunsets, dropping, etc., etc., not dropping, whatever, sunsets, and, um, and it would always be in Hello in magazines, oh, look, Seal and Heidi Klum, they've renewed their vows in this deeply romantic uh, moment once again. What? How is, how is redoing your marriage vows every year romantic? It's just a contract. So for seven years... We're going to spectacularly renew our marriage vows. Yes, we are. How wonderful. And then year eight, are we going to do our marriage vows? Nah, I'm not into you anymore. In fact, I'd like a divorce. And so they divorced, leaving four children to, you know, whatever. Do you see that? That's not a, that's not a marriage which is romantic. That's a marriage based on performance. Do you still do it for me this year? Oh, yes. Well, let's, let's have another go for another year. Let's re-sign the contract and make some money by having some nice glossy photos in Hello Magazine. Uh, great. Um, this year? Yeah, let's do it again. This year? Nah. A proper marriage is a promise. I'll love you. And even when you're very annoying, I'll love you. And when you wind me up, I'll love you because I promise to love you and we'll get through this. And even if you are profoundly irritating, I've promised. And that is how we live the Christian life. God says, I've promised. I have secured your salvation. I've done everything for you in Jesus Christ. I've promised. So this year, if you bog it, if you stumble, if you get things wrong, well, you'll be pretty pleased you're not relying on your own religiosity to put you right before God. But my promise, freedom. If you think it's down to you, anxiety, slavery. Let me finish with this. On, um, bear with me. On Tuesday afternoon, um, some of our closest friends, their 16-year-old child was declared dead. 24 hours, excuse me, 36 hours earlier he'd been fine gone from fine to dead in 36 hours. You don't expect that to happen in 2017. Dead. His parents are shattered uh, and broken. One of the most helpful things for them to know is that even you know, as, as recently as a month ago, their 16-year-old had said, you know, I do struggle to live the Christian life. I know it's true. I believe it for myself. I'm very grateful that it's what Christ has done because I'm not very good at living the Christian life. And I know I need to get a bit better. But I am grateful that Christ has done it for me. Well, what, what freedom that is for him or was for him 
when he's near death. I cannot tell you how liberating that is for his parents. The freedom it gives them to know that because of trusting in that promise, they will see their son again. The last thing they read to him before he went, drifted into unconsciousness, was um, the last few verses of Romans chapter 8, where Paul writes. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Whether you believe the promise now in your life as a Christian that affects how you live. But when it comes to your eternity, having that promise that Christ has done it all, he will never let go of you. Can I just tell you if you're in any doubt, nothing else matters. And so I get the privilege of standing up in front of, I think it'll be several hundred, at Charlie's funeral and telling them that if you trust in Jesus Christ, nothing can separate you from his love. Go and do it. That's a promise you want to trust in.